Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Report. With us today is Daniel McAdams, our co-host. Daniel, good to see you. Good morning, Dr. Paul. How are you this morning? Ready and raring to go. All right. Good. Good. <laughs> so let's see what we can start off with today. A few, few good things. The world is probably not a lot worse off than it was yesterday, but it didn't get a lot better either. Yeah. Then that takes a lot of time, and uh, we like to participate in making a suggestion on what we as individuals can do and what uh, the writers can do and what uh, information can do, because that makes all the difference in the world. But today, we want to talk about a subject we've been talking about for a long time. Matter of fact, we probably started talking about it in 2014 when this... Uh, a crazy war started in, in Ukraine. Wasn't so crazy from the uh, from, from from NATO's position. Uh, they they claimed to you know Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. So they uh, had to have a coup and get rid of their their leaders. Not yeah. tough enough. So so they had a coup and uh, and then that caused the Russians to react. And it's been going on ever since, tit for tat. And uh, right now, you know, it was announced just a month ago or so that uh, the Ukrainians are under pressure from us. We had to go in there and have a counter counteroffensive against what the success of the Russians. Yeah. So they were all, all, all set to do this, but then it, it wasn't doing so well, and then it's back and forth. But our government keeps pushing them, pushing them anyway. Even though uh, we argued at the time that uh, it was foolish to start it, it was ridiculous, and it turns out that they knew about how bad it was. Now, the Wall Street Journal had an article and said, you know, the officials knew that it was a, a no-win situation, yeah. and uh, just get, just it's bad, but give us more money. So they, they keep doing that. Even today, uh, they have, even though now the the article came out with information that uh, you know a, a good person in the military uh, <clears throat> could understand and probably predict this uh, from the early on, and that is what uh, is happening. It was totally unsuccessful, and now uh, they're admitting we knew it all along. Of course, they're not saying it that way, but that's what the Wall Street Journal, who was very very hawkish, uh, admitted they weren't ready for this. Why? What in thunder are we doing this for? Yeah, and the people who <coughs> warned that that this would be the outcome were completely ignored. I mean, we've talked about people like Colonel McGregor and. Larry Johnson and others, Scott Ritter, they've all speak, spoken at our conferences. They were saying this all along and they were just dismissed as, oh, just pro-Russian uh, defeatists. But now we have the Wall Street Journal starting to spill the beans a little bit. Put on that first clip if you can. This is the article and everyone's talking about this article because um, <coughs> it's rare when the mainstream media tells some truth and when it does, it's shocking. The article is titled, Ukraine's Lack of Weaponry and Training Risks and Training Risks Stalemate in Fight with Russia. And go to the next one. Here is the operative phrase. Um, when Ukraine launched its big counteroffensive this spring, Western military officials knew Kiev didn't have all the training or weapons from shells to warplanes that it needed to dislodge Russian forces. But they hoped Ukrainian courage and resourcefulness would carry the day. It's an astonishing sentence, Dr. Paul, because they knew they didn't have what it takes to do what they said they were going to do, which is take back uh, parts of, of Ukraine that Russia had occupied. They knew they couldn't do it, so their strategy was simply to hope. 
that they did it. I mean, I've never seen <laughs> such cynicism on display before. That is a real stretch to justify what they were doing and risk the lives of many people and lives were lost. And this is, uh, you know, it's propaganda. And whether it was the uh, Mideast wars that went on, how propaganda was used to pump it up and get the people, you know, annoyed <clears throat> to the point where if you didn't support the wars, you were unpatriotic and here <laughs> doing the same thing. They have to pump the people up. but. The people who really want war, we do know that people who make money off wars, you know, maybe a little war with uh, continue wasting away of weapons, that might not be the worst thing in the world for yeah. them. They don't, have to, they don't have to feel guilty. Yeah. We just steal it from the American people through taxation. But we won't, we won't uh, have to go and uh, have Americans killed. And uh, eventually that policy runs out of steam. <clears throat> and I think it is starting to run out of steam. Uh, but uh, the American people have a lot of other things to think about, and I think that's one thing that's happening today in the in the campaign is that uh, the American people don't know a whole lot about it. They're disgusted with it. They're hearing, though, that it costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They're starting to hear about problems we have here at home. Maybe some of that money should be spent at home. Maybe maybe we should be worrying about our borders, that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's uh, not very much enthusiasm. Even though the beginning of the war, I wouldn't call that enthusiasm on our part because somebody else was going to do the fighting. So there was not that much enthusiasm, but uh, there was an intense interest and they did a lot of maneuvering uh, between not only the uh, the people who are going to make money, but also those people in government who philosophically think, well, this is necessary to save our to save our national security yeah. and all that nonsense that they pump up to get the American people to uh, support the efforts. But uh, let's hope, my, my suspicion is, is that the American people are losing their enthusiasm for this war and they never had a whole lot. And that ultimately will be what changes the policy is when the people just say enough is enough, who knows? By the end of next year, maybe the people will vote for people that say, I'm bringing the troops home, I'm bringing the troops home, and we're gonna save this money and we're gonna concentrate on our problems here at home. Yeah. Well, I think we have to assume that the media is the, basically an arm of government. So when I read this, when I read this article a couple of times, it really struck me as kind of what they call a limited hangout, um, because they give you some information, a little bit of partial truth, so that you come to a conclusion. So the reason that struck me this, this way is that it's like, oh yeah, well of course we knew all along that they weren't going to be able to, to do this, you know. After five weeks of grueling battles, they estimate over 25,000 men have died in wow. these five weeks in this counteroffensive. And when it hasn't gone anywhere, they haven't even reached the first fortified lines in southern Ukraine, uh, first of at least three or four, depending on what part of that area there are. They haven't even reached the first lines, and they've been slaughtered. And so what do they do? Someone from the administration uh, leaks to the Wall Street Journal, oh, well, we knew all along that they weren't going to do it anyway. We just kind of hoped that they would. Um, so it's, it's really the height of cynicism, but at the same time you could also talk about how this is what happens when you believe your own propaganda. I mean, it's a circular reasoning when people like McGregor and Ritter and those are saying, look, based on our experience, this is what's going to happen. This is not what you're saying. They just refuse to listen, uh, like they did with COVID and other things and something we're going to talk about later today. Um, they just refuse to listen and refuse to consider any outside voices that would that would interfere with the narrative that they had you know constructed it's 
it's like the old thing that was um, uh, from the Bush administration. We make our own, we create our <laughs> own reality, you know, and that's what they do. And so unfortunately for Ukrainian men who are now few and fewer and further between, thousands and thousands have died because Washington hoped that they would do better. Yes, you know, but they continue with some of their ordinary things that they do with, you know, sustainable war. They keep precipitating. And what, what I'm thinking about right here is the uh, bombing of the bridge from Crimea to, to Russia. Now, that's a provoca provocation and that's explicit. And they know darn well, you know, if they finally admit that they knew they didn't have a chance against Russia anyway, they know darn well that this, this is going to aggravate the Russians. So some of, and, and, and there was no resistance by the United States, but it was our weaponry, it was NATO, they admit it. And, and I think uh, uh, Ukraine sort of uh, bragged about it. And uh, of course there was retaliation. And what, what did they do? Uh, Russia says, well, now that you're just accelerating, you can just hold your own wheat. And then the next step goes up, they boycott the wheat. And uh, of course, this has helped again. <clears throat> Maybe this is what their goal was. A lot of people say, oh, the Russians are starving the people. It's all Russia's fault. Yeah. You know, just like they said Russia was the only one at fault with the, with the war at the beginning. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, one of the things that this war is showing, and I remember Colonel McGregor said it from the beginning, it's basically showing that NATO's weapons aren't any good. I mean, we've seen the leopards, you know, frying in the fields. We've seen the uh, Bradleys getting blown up by these, you know, $500 drones. Um, their weapons aren't any good, and their training and tactics aren't very good either. Uh, and so it really has exposed NATO as a useless organization. But, you know, the article talks about, you know, sort of blaming the Ukrainians for not doing better. Uh, and blaming them for not uh, using combined arm tactics uh, and maneuver warfare, which they started out in this counteroffensive. I'm not a military expert by any stretch of the imagination, but they started the counteroffensive using what they were trained to do, which is this combined armed arms tactics and maneuver warfare. But you can't do that if you don't have air superiority. I mean, it's like having a stool with two legs. You know, the third leg breaks off, and that's what's happened. And in fact, we knew that all along. Let's put on the next clip. This is from that article. Um, it says, America, this is a quote from John Nagel, who's a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel. He said, quote, <coughs> America would never attempt to defeat a prepared defense without air superiority. But the Ukrainians don't have air superiority. It's impossible to overstate how important air superiority is for finding a ground fight at a reasonable cost in casualties. And any person who's gone through the military training knows this for a fact. And if you look back at all of the wars that we fought recently, all, by the way, against very, very inferior forces, but you look at Libya, Yugoslavia, Baghdad, Afghanistan, the very first thing was to establish air superiority. And this is one thing that Ukrainian troops do not have, which is why they're being slaughtered. You know, there's always lines being drawn. We get involved in a war, but it doesn't want to be our war. It doesn't have to be our troop, but we will use our NATO. We will use our weapons and, and this sort of thing. But there's always a line drawn. Well, no, we're not going to send in troop what we send in the CIA and, 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 and you know, military experts for advice. They do yeah. that. So, the, but that, that's okay because it's not uh, body bags uh, like it was in Vietnam. So they, they, draw the, they draw these lines, and one line is, you know, if, if this were serious war, let's say, let's say that everything they said about Russia taking over Europe, but we don't do something, yeah. if they, and it had to be defeated, well, 
would they what would they do with the Air Force? Would they draw a line and say, oh yeah, we'll uh, we'll give we'll pretend we're going to give them to yeah. <laughs> Ukraine? Oh, it takes a lot of training, and it but but it stimulates that effort, and they draw these lines, and uh, and it has to be in many ways deliberate because they're it's not an all-out war, fortunately, but it's an all-out effort to undermine a system of governments around the world and threaten a real war breaking out. I mean, a real war about a big war. I'm talking about, you know, all of Europe and all of Asia getting involved in this. Uh, I think the money will run out before then. I don't think that's going to happen here in the near future. But uh, I think the strategy of limited uh, war and having lines drawn, and as long as we don't have our pilots flying those airplanes, that'll be okay because uh, maybe the Russians would shoot some of them down. Uh, then that could be embarrassing. So the lines are artificially drawn for a war that is artificial. Yes, exactly. And you know the, now they're talking about F-16s. We can put on that next clip, please. Um, I think the next one. Let's go ahead and put it up and see what we have here. Um, yeah, here's just another example. The DoD analysts knew early this year that Ukraine's frontline troops would struggle against Russian air attacks. They knew that, but still they put out the propaganda that Ukraine was winning. Uh, and go to the next one. Now this is about the next thing coming because we've talked about this before so many times. Dr. Paul, which is if we only send javelins, if we only send HIMARS, if we only send this, then that's going to turn the tide. That's going to be the wonder weapon. Well, nothing has worked. And so now that's why they're talking about F-16s. And if you look at this, um, if Ukraine receives the planes, i.e. the F-16s, their impact on fighting would depend on many factors, including the number supplied, the sophistication of the onboard equipment, and the weapon systems provided to arm them, and I underline this part, incorporating advanced jet fighters into battle plans is also extremely complicated, requiring another level of synchronization in Ukrainian operations. And none other than Mark Emilio, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he is now, instead of saying this is going to be the next wonder weapon, he's actually pouring cold water on the idea. He says, quote, there's no silver bullet in war. The outcomes of battles and wars are the function of many variables. He's warning them that sending a couple F-16s is not going to change the nature of the battle. Um, and, and anyone who knows about these know like, where they're going to take off from. You can't just take them off from an empty field. Uh, there's a lot of technical things about the, the nature of the intake of the F-16s are very susceptible to sabotage. Um, so the idea that we're just going to throw these in and it's going to change the, the nature of the, of the <coughs> warfare is, is absurd. Uh, the cynicism is insane. But also, it's starting to take on a political component because this war is becoming less popular, and I think Biden's people understand that. You'd think an announcement like that would be on the front pages of every newspaper, the war's over, the war's over. You know, uh, uh, our heart and the money and our pe people aren't willing to support it. Our national security is not threatened. Yeah. The war should end. <clears throat> And uh, the border disputes uh, should be ironed out by the people whose borders are being abused. And, uh, but not, not our CIA and our military and our money and our taxpayers, <coughs> because they uh, purposely uh, fight no-win wars. They want delayed wars. Look how long they last in the Middle East and Afghanistan. It's just a tragedy what they have done. Yeah. You know, I, I guess uh, World War II was a moralistic uh, declared war, and people knew knew where they could identify the enemy, and they defended, identified the goal, and it didn't last long, which was pretty amazing. But that's not the case now. Wars to go on, 
and it's never to be a clear decoration. Yeah. From, from the first week I was in Congress, I was on a radio program talking about this issue, and the Democrat that I was pseudo-debating, he says, it's never going to be used again, and I've had that thrown out to me many times. So it's been canceled, this whole idea that the Congress, by vote and representing the people, have something to do about when we start these wars. And that, I still think, is one of the one of the problems that we have. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'd hate to be Zelensky because he should, all he needs to do is look through a little bit of history and look what happens to the people who were the favorites, Noriega, Gaddafi, Saddam, Milosevic. Uh, <laughs> it's not a good position, and they're going to start looking for someone to blame, and I would not, he's going to have to go to one of his hundreds of homes that he owns. Uh, well, let's move on because this is an interesting one. This is something we've, we've talked about for a long time, uh, which is silencing scientists whose views are not accepted by the mainstream. And this is from the Daily Skeptic. Cancellations start for John Clauser after Nobel, Nobel physics laureate speaks out about the corruption of climate science. An extremely distinguished physicist wins a Nobel Prize, starts talking about things like climate change in a way that the elites don't want, and he's canceled. Right, and uh, the one motivation that they have to have is fear, scare the people, yeah. you know, whether it's a virus or uh, somebody's going to invade us or, or whatever it is. They have to scare and build up the, the uh, fear. And uh, they, they generally get away with this uh, at, and, uh, until somebody wakes up. But uh, this, this, this mess that we have now, these people are, that are citing all these statistics, the hottest day in the world <laughs> history. <laughs> and you know, people have already dissected that and that's what this article is about. And this is why John Clauser, you know, uh, you, you know, has been revealing what he really believes. And isn't it amazing? <laughs> when they were looking at him as a scientist, they give, they give him the Nobel Prize, yeah. you know, but they turn on him. Oh, he said something we don't agree with. <laughs> <laughs> he told the truth. He, doesn't he know what his rules, these rules are? So that, that to me is, is such, a, such a tragedy. And I, 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 don't, I don't have any fear. I don't lie awake at night thinking, will the truth ever be known? No, the truth will be known. But tragically, there's going to be a lot of suffering in the meantime. And uh, this whole thing about, just think, uh, you know, the whole effort of lockdown on, on uh, COVID probably was, did a lot more harm than good. But you, you would have ended up with more scientific evidence of what we should do and who should get shots and this sort of thing if it had been sorted out medically and scientifically rather than politically. And that's, that's where the, the real problem is. And it also shows us, unfortunately, that not much has changed. You know, the whole COVID narrative has fallen apart. Everyone knows it's a joke. But they still continue. You know, this is basically, I am the science. And if you don't <laughs> agree with me, then you are not the science. And here's a little bit from that article, if we can put on that next clip. Because uh, so earlier he slammed the climate emergency narrative as, quote, dangerous corruption of science that threatens the world's economy and the well-being of billions of people. Now, this guy does this for a living. As you point out, Dr. Paul, he won a Nobel Prize. One would assume he understands what he's talking about better than the rest of us. However, um, his decision, based on his scientific research, that the climate models, the temperature models, are inaccurate, and they're based on inaccurate assumptions, that's enough to get him canceled. Uh, and why don't we go ahead uh, to, I just want to go to the one 
Uh, go ahead. One more, yeah. So this is some, this, uh, one more, if we can go. So this is the Australian climate journalist Joe Nova uh, was talking about Klauser's recent comments. And she said, the thing about skeptical Nobel Prize winners is that they make the name-calling climate denier programs look as stupid as they can, as they can get. And she goes on to say, the same team that tells us we must listen to the experts won't listen to any experts <coughs> they don't like. They rave about UN experts that hide the decline, but run a mile to avoid the giants of science. They'll ask a high school dropout about climate change on primetime TV before they interview Nobel Prize winners. It's a lie by omission. It's active deception. And the whole climate movement is built on it. And this is that journalist uh, from Australia talking about uh, Dr. Klauser, very interesting and revealing. Right, you know, whether it's uh, COVID or what we do with these wars that go on, there's a certain group of people that have existed and they're getting a lot of attention right now. And that is the, the, fat, the true fascists, and they talk about cultural fascism. They're talking about the, the no need for liberty, no need for truth, this sort of thing. That's, that's ongoing. And I keep thinking, you know, and the word fascist is being thrown back and forth all the time. The more fascist you are, sometimes the more they use the term. So I thought, well, maybe the strategy be, ought to be something like this. Instead of just saying, these guys are a bunch of fascists, so why will I listen to them? And I've decided maybe what we ought to do is, is not call them fascists. Uh, we'll, ch we'll, we'll change it and try to, uh, try to put the label on them, which they are. Uh, and the one word that I've used a lot over the year when the people are in disagreement with liberty, they're authoritarians. Yeah. They, they want to tell you well, how to live, what to buy, what to eat, and how to live, and when you should die in wars, and that sort of thing. And, uh, it, and, they're, and authoritarians also want to re regulate uh, your freedom of expression. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. Uh, they're doing this. They're, they're fascists. But then they say, oh, you're calling him Hitler. Yeah. No, no, authoritarian, he's, uh, some people think that that leads to fascism. But he's an authoritarian, people who are authoritarians when they do this, this aggressiveness in, uh, in uh, the climate or, uh, or in uh, treatment of, uh, of uh, viruses and that type of thing. But what they're uh, warring against is uh, freedom of expression. Authoritarians like to do like that. And right now they consider it very important. And it is very important. And that's why the uh, pe people that, uh, you know, express themselves uh, deserve the attention if they're telling the truth because uh, they're, th th that makes all the difference in the world. That's why the people there's a lot of people running for president if you add up everybody on the Republican and Democratic side. And the people, when, if they were allowed to speak and express themselves, the people who were most believable would do the best. But somehow or another, they sometimes can distort, sort of like Robert F. Kennedy. I mean, he is a really, if you read the papers now, he is a really bad guy, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it, probably his greatest error politically, he was too blunt with the truth, yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, let's move on because I, I, th I think we're, we're, we've dealt with this one. And someone that I think we both admire quite a bit for his talents <coughs> and for his humanity passed away over the weekend, and that's Tony Bennett. Uh, great, great singer and great person. Um, now, you had a quote you wanted to read that our friend Lou Rockwell put up, and I think it's just absolutely terrific. So we can go ahead and put it on the screen for people who are watching. Uh, and this is from Lou Rockwell's blog. Uh, and I think you wanted to read. The right, book. right. I, it was so impressive. And it was sent to him by Mike Tennant. Uh -huh. And uh, 
it caught my attention because I, I knew, knew Tony Bennett was a great singer and uh, I, singers, I'm not very sophisticated <laughs> in describing things, but when I hear a song, which are usually several decades old, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I say, he's a feel-good singer. Yeah, yeah. You know, you hear it and you say, yeah, it makes you feel good. Yeah, and yeah. that's what music is supposed to do. Sure. If, you know, feel good or be impressed with uh, how great they are. So th this is the statement. <clears throat> uh, Tony Bennett wasn't just a great singer. After experiencing combat in World War II, he became ardently anti-war. In his memoir, he wrote, quote, the main thing I got out of my military experience was the realization that I am completely opposed to war. Every war is insane, no matter where it is or what it's all about. Fighting is the lowest form of human behavior. It's amazing to me that with all the great teachers of literature and art and all the contributions that have been made on this very precious planet, we still haven't evolved a more humane approach to the way we work out our conflicts. Pretty good quote there. Yeah, that was great, that <laughs> was great. Well, I'm gonna close by reminding everyone that it's Monday and put on that last clip, it's time to get your tickets to join us in September <coughs> at Which Way America, the Ron Paul Institute's seventh <coughs> annual Washington DC conference. It'll be held on September the 2nd. We still have tickets for sale and these last few days of July, we still have the early bird special. So save some money, get your tickets and join us in September. Over to you, Dr. Paul. Very good. Now I'm looking forward to the conference and I hope see uh, most of you coming to the conference. And it's been very important for us to continue our momentum in energizing people who, uh, so, uh, you, you know, who share our interests and uh, share our belief that war and peace is achievable, and not magically and not perfectly. But uh, the contest is between those people who live and die having war needlessly, pretending that they're saving the universe and that uh, they do it in all sorts of manner. So it's a distortion of the truth. So I, I am always most pleased that uh, when people will come and comment about our program or what we have been saying, is at least we can hear a straight story and hear the truth of things on what is going on. So we do our very best on that. I don't think there's any other way to change things other than through persuasion and uh, this whole idea that you can control uh, expression by authoritarianism is an evil thought, but it's been going on for a long time. Truth is powerful, and we do, it's amazing to me always that uh, our message doesn't do a lot better. H how can people refuse it? You know, telling the truth creates the greatest amount of prosperity and the greatest amount of peace possible, so there's no reason in the world to try to weasel their way, people weasel their way out of saying, oh no, but that's extreme, truth is unachievable, you got to admit, there's a lot of evil out there, and we better go get them before they get us. No, there's a better way of looking at these things. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today to the Liberty Report. Please come back soon. <laughs>